Welcome at the Coalface. I'm Philippe Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world and beyond the noisy headlines. And we hope a few interesting insights come out. First, a word from the Fletcher School. Register by May 1st for Fletcher Live Online. This is a collection of five week-long courses that give you essential tools to navigate today's global landscape. Engage with world-renowned faculty and enter a global community of fellow leaders, diplomats, CEOs and innovators tackling many of the same challenges as you. Courses include negotiation, strategy and leadership for social impact, economic inclusion, cyber risk, and understanding climate action. See show notes for details. Today, I speak with Enrique Ochoa. Enrique is a seasoned humanitarian professional whose expertise is in conflict emergencies. His career has taken him all over the world, from Latin America to the Middle East to South Asia and Southeast Asia. He's a consummate learner, a principled leader, and a really engaging person. It's a great pleasure to be speaking with him on the difficult subject of war. Uh, first of all, Happy New Year. Uh, yes, no, you too. I, I remember you well when uh, Christian uh, told me about you. I, I, I wondered, I guess, I think I have met him, but I was not sure. And then I saw your picture and of course I, I remember you very well. Yes, yes. I'm not sure you had a, a beard at the time. Actually, I, I, I'm not. I think I remember you slightly differently. <laughs> maybe it's yes, just uh, we found the beard. Yes, maybe we can get going because Christian had this conversation with with you in preparation for our for our for our for our for our episode today, uh, and um, and uh, I, I read up a bit about you as well, and um, you, you're somebody with a. A real long, interesting track record in the in the humanitarian uh, space, um, having uh, lived and worked uh, in quite a number of uh, complicated places, including uh, Colombia, Gaza, Afghanistan, mm. Myanmar, Sri Lanka, and so um, I, I, I recall when I was uh, a student uh, at the end of business school, uh, I was contemplating uh, different careers, and we had a ICRC uh, recruiter there who was mm. pitching for um, for careers in the humanitarian space, and uh, he himself had—I don't remember his name. It was 15, 20 years ago, but um, he had a similar track record to to yours. So his whole career was in um, mostly uh, conflict zones, actually. Mm. And he told me, uh, Philip, this, this, this isn't a hobby, uh, humanitarian work. Like you, you can only survive emotionally, mentally, and all of that if you've got um, what he called, he used the French word, uh, la, la fibre humanitaire. And uh, I don't know how to translate that in English. It's like you, you're made of humanitarian cloth, if you like. So, so when, when I when I looked at your background, I, I thought that, that that Enrique that must be somebody made from this cloth. So I'd l- I'd love to hear a bit more about about uh, yes. So so your your career in in humanitarian work. Okay. Uh, well, honestly, it was a, a bit of a by by chance that I ended up in this uh, in this sector. 
I think and thinking about it uh, years later about why I ended up here um, because in the beginning my first uh, my first uh, work uh, professional work was uh, as a financial analyst in a big Spanish corporate uh, okay. doing stock valuation and derivative valuation and all that wow. and uh, so but that was not for me and then uh, I changed I changed career I started to do a master's in humanitarian action because some of my friends have done it and uh, I have few colleagues who have gone through this and I, and they found it very interesting so I decided to do it but then with with hindsight um it's true that I was always involved when I was uh, uh, when I was young. I was always involved in my um, in my own city, in in social work, be it uh, part of cultural or youth organizations. I was uh, part of the peace movement at that time in the in Navarra, in the Basque Country, where there was a conflict ongoing. Oh yeah. And um, so I always had that kind of uh, inclination for public uh, service, public good. And um, in public, in the private sector, that didn't, although it was very interesting, I I found that something was missing for me. So I started to do this, and I first uh, I did a master's in humanitarian action, and I ended up uh, doing an internship in Guatemala in indigenous communities in a, in a uh, yes, uh, social development with indigenous communities in, in Guatemala, and I, 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 I really saw that I found my my... You're calling, or <laughs> yes, yeah. it's a combination. I mean, humanitarian action is a combination of, uh, first of all, um, being convinced that uh, you really uh, want to work or, or do something to to support, help people, and I think yeah. that's uh, one part, part of that fiber you are talking about. But then there is a lot also about uh, an interest in, in in politics, in international relations, in in how the world works in how policies affect people. So there is a lot of political content to it, which I was always very interested in. So there is a combination of reasons. And then well, when I started doing this, um, I really liked also the, the, the chance of visiting and, and, and living in many places around the world. And then yeah. when I was a child again, uh, because of, we couldn't do it in the family, my, my, my parents never traveled, I always admired people who, who traveled. <laughs> And who visited places, and so in the end, I was able to do it myself, and not only visit, but living in places uh, and really getting to know what was going on in in so such a diverse uh, uh, world. So I think uh, all those were elements of the motivation, and then right. I really liked the day to day of what I do. So yeah, that was it. Now, can you describe these first moments when you, 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 so it was quite, quite a bold decision to then say, okay, I don't want to, I don't want my career in uh, evaluation and finance. I'm, I'm going to give that up uh, to then go uh, study again uh, and, and then take this step of, uh, I mean, I mean, financially, for example, it's, it's, it's a complete change of, uh, of income as well. And then to end up in Guatemala, uh, like far, far away from everything. How, how was that? Like, yeah, how, how was the impression when you, when you started off there? Well, yeah, it was a bit difficult because I was actually living in, in almost a hut in, a, <laughs> in, the, in an indigenous community. So I said, okay, so from, from Palma de Mallorca, where I was living in this beautiful <laughs> island in the Mediterranean here, but the truth is that when I was working in the, I think, and I think this is a good exercise for everybody that wants to really think about what they want in their careers. And, and, I, and that's something that that particular moment in my life taught me, which is 
think of yourself in three, five, ten years. Do you like what you are seeing, or is that the strategic direction that you want to take? And for me, it was clear when I was in in the private sector that that was not. So uh, although it was, I really loved being in that place, and I really loved the, the the work. It was very interesting. I found myself much more at ease when I was in this hut in Guatemala, <laughs> and uh, and uh, although the, yeah, the, there was no money about it, but I really found that uh, this was really interesting for me. And I think, yeah. uh, and then it was confirmed later on when I really started to do professional humanitarian work, first with the UN, I started then in, in, in Ecuador, and then uh, uh, later on with the, with the International Committee of the Red Cross. So... Yeah, it was a change. It was not the only change because I then, when I was in the UN, I moved to ICRC and then I started again down in the in the <laughs> in the hierarchy. And uh, but I, yeah, m- money was never in my uh, in my top priority uh, of things that I wanted. Uh, although of course we need to to to, uh, to earn a living and and all that. But uh, yeah, I think uh, I, I really knew that it was uh, that was something good. Help me uh, understand a bit more about uh, the humanitarian space, because um, after that conversation that I referred to in graduate school, I decided to go in the private sector. So I never got that experience in the humanitarian space. But what, what I, I did spend quite a bit of time trying to understand what it was, and so I have, but I have quite a superficial understanding of it. Um, at the time, the way I understood it is there's a, there's another moment around about around disaster relief, uh, food and, and medication uh, provision. Uh, there's an element about um, peacetime uh, work, such as uh, visiting prisons and, and, and trying to, to teach uh, local authorities about uh, and, and police and security about human rights and things like that. And then there's conflict zone relief. And it, it struck me that all of these uh, themes um, have to do with managing the consequences of, of sad decisions or, or unfortunate events. Uh, but, but it's primarily about relief. It's not about fixing things. It's about making the life of people uh, a little bit less miserable. It's, it's, I'd love just to hear you talk a little bit about what, what is humanitarian work to, to you? I think even you, you, you may not have that experience, but you got exactly right. <laughs> what is humanitarian work? It's, it's just putting badges. To, to a situation, so you are not fixing it. Uh, humanitarian uh, action is about um, preventing and relieving suffering of people uh, affected by disaster, or in my case, I'm specialized in conflict. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, that's about it. Um, in, and that's why I joined also International Committee of the Red Cross, because it has a very particular mandate, which is about uh, protecting uh, people affected by conflict and violence and also uh, relieving their, their suffering and, and try to prevent uh, further suffering. Uh, it doesn't, and there are other sectors in the, in the development field which, uh, which precisely look at fixing uh, the, the root causes of, uh, of conflict and, and of suffering, and uh, they are in the development side, of course, then you have the peace building, uh, all the peace building architecture, etc. I work in a particular niche in all this yeah. sector, which is the humanitarian action, and even a smaller niche, humanitarian action in armed conflict. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and within that, I work for an organization that basically uh, tries to protect uh, uh, people affected by conflict, and there, there is a whole uh, uh, legal basis, international humanitarian law, 
uh, approved by basically ratified by all countries in the world, which is about uh, ensuring that civilians are respected, ensuring that det uh, detainees, prisoners of war are treated correctly, et cetera, et cetera. So a big part of, uh, of humanitarian work is not only about providing goodies or providing services like yeah. health or, or, or livelihoods or, or, or water and sanitation, but it's about, in my case, a lot of this is about promoting a legal framework that has been ratified by by your country in the world, the Geneva Conventions, etc. Monitoring what's going on in the field to see if parties to a conflict, for example, are respecting those conventions, if civilians are being targeted or are being disproportionately affected by 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 conflict. Uh, yeah. If detainees are treated uh, uh, correctly, etc., uh, etc., et so it's a lot. It has a, 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 a significant legal uh, yeah. part to it. Yeah, mm. yeah. And I'd I'd love to hear a little bit more about your work in conflict zones uh, specifically. Um, can you share a little bit, like what was what was some of the work that you you were you were doing? Um, and even though some of the countries that we just mentioned at the start of this conversation are different continents and seem to have so, so little in common. Like what were some of the common points across these different crises? Well, <clears throat> I mean, the first common point that it comes to mind is, uh, is how uh, uh, decisions at, uh, at top levels affect disproportionately uh, civilian populations. Yeah. Uh, I mean, mm. and, and this for me, um, probably the first really field conflict experience was in Colombia, mm -hmm. then later in Gaza, and then later yeah. in Afghanistan, and then in Myanmar, those were where I was really uh, uh, in the midst of uh, conflict. And in all of them, you see the, the, the enormous uh, injustice uh, um, of war affecting disproportionately uh, civilians and people uh, like you and me that happened to yeah. be born in a place uh, in the middle of that uh, of that situation, so definitely in Colombia, I remember very well when I was there. How uh, also because we had an incredible access in in rural areas, you were able to visit places that uh, that were uh, affected by combat every single day, maybe the previous day, and you went there later to see what were the impacts, and you saw people. But losing families, losing members, uh, uh, people disappearing, and, and their families not knowing was uh, anything about them for sometimes for years. Um, and uh, we tried to bring a little bit of relief on that. Try to, for example, in Colombia, where a key part of the work was trying to uh, discussing with all the parties to the conflict, being the the, the, the armed forces or or guerrilla groups trying to find out uh, what was the, the fate of people that have been missing, trying to bring some news to the families, uh, etc. Uh, so, yeah, that, that sense of injustice uh, uh, and that sense that we could, that even a small uh, uh, support is worth and is fair and is, uh, is the responsibility uh, uh, of the first of those involved in conflict, but also of the international community to support in bringing some relief and trying to protect as much as possible the rights, because the, 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 the people have rights. It's not, it's not about being good and being moral. It's about uh, upholding uh, uh, rights that have been ratified uh, um, in these places. Yeah. And so um, some of the, so, so it sounds like you, you, you had reasonably 
good access to these conflict zones right. and you were you were able to to interact directly with some of the affected civilian parties and and offer relief in the form of t- tracking uh missing people but also i imagine uh, temporary shelter medical support and things like that as well what, what was the what was some of the i would say like so some of the most impactful forms of relief that you provided for, for, across these different conflicts yeah the first thing that comes to mind is uh, is precisely that what doesn't have to do with relief itself, with what with what which is uh, basically the dialogue with those that are fighting. So in in in, in Colombia, clearly the armed forces, but also guerrilla groups that were fighting, and we meet them uh, regularly. We try to enter into a discussion with them on how to improve the protection of civilians. For example, imagine that. A party to the conflict is just positioning its troops every day near a school or near a, a health center or or some of the troops are behaving in a way that is not compliant so entering into a discussion with those with those actors to try to influence their behavior in accordance to to, to this legal framework uh, and uh, and I think that's the often the most impactful thing you can do because basically you act as a, as, a, as a mediator between the civilian population themselves and parties to the conflict. And this is in, in Colombia, but also in Gaza, where we had a, a, a regular, regular discussion with, uh, with Palestinian factions, uh, both political and armed wings, but also with the Israeli Defense Forces. It tried to uh, make sure that people that were injured had access to, to, to health services, even in, in, in real-time conflict. And, and try to do that mediation and that coordination with parties to the conflict so that people could uh, uh, access hospitals, etc. So a lot of what we do, actually half of what we do, is not basically doing or providing relief, uh, uh, goods and services, but it's trying to mediate uh, and, and have a dialogue with those that are fighting to ensure that people are I wouldn't say not affected because that's almost impossible, but try that uh, they are affected in the in the less possible way. And then, of course, yes, there is the the, the whole part of of um, relief uh, per se, which uh, basically is supporting either providing health services or supporting health systems, uh, uh, reinforcing the capacity of the health sector, uh, providing uh, uh, relief items like uh, from yes from uh, shelter. To water and sanitation infrastructure, to to, to food, uh, and, and basic items that people need when they when they have to run away, which is like a blanket, yeah. is like food, uh, like water. To what extent would you say that this activity was politicized itself? Like, like because obviously you were known, a well known entity within the conflict zone. Was mm-hmm. there a? How did you make sure that you were not? taken advantage of or utilized so, somehow that you didn't play a negative role by, by simply being a mediator, if you like. We call that in the in the in the instrumentalization. So basically, right. and, and this mm. is a, this is a, a continuous risk in every single place we work in, which is uh, actors trying to instrumentalize, take advantage of uh, of uh, or use humanitarian assistance with political objectives. And yeah. how you prevent that? Uh, well, you have to first of all really know the context, and this mm-hmm. is not one person; it's an institution with its institutional knowledge of a, con- of a context to understand what are the political dynamics uh, um, in a conflict. You have to, you, you cannot be naive 
Uh, you cannot be, think that just uh, providing food is a non-political uh, um, issue because although we are apolitical as, a, as, a, as an organization, most humanitarian actors are apolitical, you are in a very politicized environment. And you have to be very careful uh, to understand what are the political dynamics, uh, the, 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 the root dynamics in the conflict, and ensure that you are not... Um, contributing to the efforts of one side or the other. And mm, for that, yeah. you have to be smart, you have to know the context, and you have to to to, to be in touch with many people, have a, a huge network of interlocutors, very much like a diplomat do uh, in, a, yeah, in, a, in, yeah. in any country. Mm. Mm. What were some of the, the events or the uh, moments that really s- stood out to you that you remember the most? Yeah, there I must be so many. In... <laughs> Probably the one that that is really ingrained in my in my mind since the very beginning, and it was because it was just a few months after I I joined the ICRC. It was um, um, a member uh, of a vaccination uh, uh, team of the yeah. public health sector was uh, kidnapped in a in a rural area of, of Colombia, and uh, it was a very high profile case. It appeared in the news. And very quickly, of course, we we got in touch with the family to understand what was the situation and to see if we could help. And uh, very quickly, we got in touch with those actors that we thought that might have uh, uh, abducted the person. Um, we were in touch with the family for almost 30 days. And, um, and later, we received a phone call. And uh, we basically had to uh, go to a rural area, and, uh, and we, we we learned that the person had been executed. Oh wow! And we had to uh, well um, recover the, the the body, uh, bring it back home, and uh, go to ask the family to see if they could go to the to the morgue to identify the body. And this was a very difficult thing. It was the really really tense and, and difficult to bring. Bad news, we were not sure, but we were almost sure that it was the person and then, then bring this bad news to the family. We had to go to see the family and ask them to go to see if they could identify the body. And, and indeed, it was him in later on. And that was really, really difficult, really sad, uh, really angering for the injustice mm. of it, for the senselessness of it. Um, but what really... Um, to understand how, what a family goes through in that situation mm. and to imagine that you receive those news and that it's so saddening and so angering and what the wife of that person that has been killed told us is this is the worst news you could bring us but it brings an end to a suffering of 30 days that it was impossible to bear mm. precisely yeah. not knowing is worse than, than, than knowing bad news themselves and this really made me understood what, what, first of all, people go through. And second, what some relief you can bring to them in some isolated cases, because many other times we cannot do anything about. But uh, <laughs> that, that was really one of the, of the things that, uh, that I remember very, very clearly. Mm, yeah, yeah. And, and, and maybe other time when I was in Gaza, I think it was also very... It was very hard, but also very rewarding because I could see that our work could do a little different for people. And it was in the middle of one of the big uh, um, spikes in conflict in Gaza. That was 2012. 
uh, with uh, really intense bombings, uh, rockets coming out of Gaza, et cetera, et cetera. But even in that situation, we could manage to um, ensure that people, uh, by coordinating with all sides, to ensure that people who were injured could get back to their, uh, uh, go to the hospital, and even prevent some bad things from happening in certain areas and provide the uh, relief in the even in the middle of uh, what was really a messy situation with bombings all the time and um, and people being basically stopped at home. So and then that was a, a really also it was the first time that I was really in the middle of battle uh, and um, and I remember that really really as if, as if it was yesterday. And of course, of course, Colombia and Gaza. It's hard to imagine two more different uh, setups. With Colombia, it's mostly uh, sparsely populated jungle and all that. Whereas Gaza, you're talking Absolutely. about ultra one of the most dense places on densely populated places on Earth uh, with a, 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 a urban conflict door to door and things like that. Exactly, exactly. Colombia, a very conflict mostly takes place in in very rural areas, which makes the work very different. Uh, and, and and Gaza is the yeah, as you say, the most densely populated space on planet. Um, very little space for anybody. And I imagine every every single bomb uh, or any every single explosion has a huge affectation. And actually, this is a this is a, a trend in conflict we see over the last uh, few years uh, worldwide. Um, what we call urbanization of conflict, uh, with mm. uh, obviously the, the normal urbanization, increasing urbanization of the world, and how conflict more and more affect those areas. And this has a, a, a completely different um, range of challenges in, in, in rural areas. Basically, what you are there to do is try to protect people as much as possible and then provide some very, very basic relief items. You know, water and sanitation is just you dig up pump hole and that's it. But in, in Gaza or in any other urban areas like Syria, for example, or Aleppo, um, mm. conflict not only affects people, it affects core infrastructure. Imagine a whole yes. water system of a big city. Um, you cannot just provide water like you do in a, in a, in a, in a jungle in Colombia. You have to support a whole water infrastructure and you have to bring engineers to repair uh, water systems and make sure that the whole system that is behind that service, which is, we opened it up, but there is a whole system behind that. Yeah. You have to, to, to bring expertise just to support that system. So it's two very different types of, uh, of humanitarian work. And, and I imagine that uh, instrumentalization applies to, to, to such services as well in conflict zone. Uh, it's, 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 I, I imagine like various factions use the ability to dispense services to their advantage to get uh, population support and things like that, I guess. Absolutely. In many places, what we try to do is um, to create that space of neutrality, I would say. I think there are, everybody understands, and, and these People in conflict-affected areas understand it better than nobody else, than everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> you go to, I mean, my country, Spain, or <laughs> probably others, and people would not understand it as better. But when you are in the middle of conflict and you are stuck in the middle of people fighting and, and, and different parties, you understand that certain core issues need to be outside politics. It, it doesn't mean that they are always are, but people understand that they should be. And this is self-services. 
mm-hmm. no matter whom should get health services. This is water. This is uh, food, etc., etc. Of course, there are other there are dynamics, and sometimes things are instrumentalized. But we we try to create that space to ensure that certain key core essential services are outside politics, and this can be applied to any place. I mean, we can we discuss about Afghanistan now. How mm. we are uh, aiming to ensure that certain core services, and this includes some public services, need to be ongoing and need to be outside any political discussion. Otherwise, people will suffer. And, and, and it's not that people will suffer. It just, it just creates more chaos and more uh, uh, destabilization. So uh, humanitarian assistance not, not only brings relief to people, it's just it's a stabilization effort needed if other steps are to be taken at political level in uh, peace dialogue, etc., and this key stabilization needs to needs to be based on on the depolitization of some key areas to ensure the the, the, the stability of society. But I'd, I'd love to hear a bit about your experience in Afghanistan. There, my impression was that th- there's quite a bit of le- legitimacy that was uh, derived by uh, groups like like the Taliban from providing public services in areas where the government was failing to do so or was uh, was extracting uh, bribes for, for that. So h- how how did you manage to get around that? I was there in 2013. That's another thing that probably struck me. Uh, when I was supposed to go to Afghanistan, I mean, you have all these uh, preconceptions and, and, and about the country and about why things are the way they are. And then I arrived there in, in Lashkarga in Helmand province in the south. It's a very really conflictive area uh, right uh, at the border with Pakistan near Kandahar. And um, I try to understand exactly why in some areas the political situation was as it was. I mean, uh, and, and I understood that what people want, first of all, is that there is some kind of stability, that there is normality, that people can trade, that people can go to the fields, that people uh, have access to minimum services, and they care much less about who is that. So all these ideological uh, elements, you know, is not the first thing that comes to mind of a person in the middle of of a rural area in Afghanistan. They want stability. They want to ensure that there is some minimum justice system, uh, that there is no chaos. So chaos is is, is just what people really fear most. And whoever brings that kind of stability uh, for good, bad reasons, and, and then I, I do not enter into that, uh, people would accept uh, yeah. in some way. I mean, I don't want to oversimplify things. It's, al- it's always much more complicated. But uh, it's not as black and white as you can think mm, uh, from yeah. outside. You know, that we make, ah, why in this country... People are accepting that government and why in this country. People really are smart about what they need. And this is, for me, uh, people are the people everywhere. They know what they need. And and whoever uh, allows for them to have it uh, would have certain level of legitimacy. And this, we cannot uh, uh, forget it. So so what was your areas of focus in Afghanistan? I was in, I was in Lashkarga in the south. It was one of the most conflictive areas of the of the country. Uh, at that time, we could not move out of our compound much because uh, the security situation was extremely extremely difficult. Um, we did basically 
one of the main activities we had is in, in, in the office I was having, uh, and we had a physical rehabilitation center, so a very big center that basically provided uh, orthopedic uh, services to people, uh, mostly affected by minds. We had that big center that provided services to people, to everybody. You could be a children, you could be a father, a peasant, you could be a member of the armed forces or the Taliban, and then you would, no matter what, you would go there and you would be able to, uh, one month, one month and a half after, uh, get out walking. And that was amazing. Mm. And, yeah, and, and yeah. this links a little bit to what you were saying about how some services are instrumentalized or not. There was an understanding in that place that that service was core. And sometimes you saw in the office of that center, people that were entering to start getting services and just found a policeman and a member of the Taliban in the same place, getting the same service. And, and everybody understood that that was important to keep. So for me, that was really also revealing. <laughs> then, of course, we did uh, with a lot of uh, support to the hospitals, and uh, we had uh, um, an important uh, um, part of our work focusing on detention. We were we visit the uh, detainees of both uh, the Afghan security forces, but also the coalition forces, the, the US and the and the UK in, in the area was covering. So we were visiting uh, the detainees, ensuring that uh, or monitoring the conditions and the, and the treatment, and, and providing recommendations to to ensure compliance with uh, with uh, well international standards of treatment. Detainees. That was a big part of what we did as well. Mm, okay, um, and I'd love also to hear a little bit about um, Sri Lanka. Um, so it's it's a country that's. Uh, dear to my uh, heart because <laughs> i have to share this little anecdote so i was uh, i was living in uh, in bahrain and uh, my 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 girlfriend who's now my my wife uh, was uh, living and working in malaysia and at the time uh, the the country had just uh, canceled direct flights between the two countries and the only place we could meet uh, w- was in the middle which is uh, actually sri lanka so we would both take overnight flights and and meet there and maintain our long distance relationship and um it it really gave me because I, I went there three four five times and it, in, including to 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 the the the, uh, the middle of the country uh, in 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 the mountains and and uh, so so beyond beyond colombo and it, it really gave me an appreciation for the the beauty of the place but also the complexity with this layers of, of of very very strong and very very different uh actually explosive uh, religious affiliations um and, and I, I just would love to hear a bit more about what, what your experience uh what, what was there yeah i remember it uh, as you do as a beautiful beautiful amazing country i think it's uh, one of the most beautiful i've, I've ever visited i was uh, posted in Trincomalee, which is the northeast Northeast Coast, uh, in 2007, just in the beginning of this big East offensive that years later ended in the, in the, in the, well, end of the war, per se. So it was the beginning of the big offensive that, uh, that years later ended the war. Um, and it was, uh, Trincomalee is a, it's a city, um, that was possibly the most diverse in the country because you had 30% were in Hala. Mostly Buddhist, thirty uh, percent with were Muslim, and thirty percent were uh, Tamil Hindu. So it was really uh, uh, an illustration of the diversity of the country, something that you don't find in other in other places. 
what what struck me the first in 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 Sri Lanka is that I arrived in Colombo, very nice place, uh, very nice hotels, and then I took the, the car to Trincomalee, and and it was full of tourists, and then you get to a place called Dambula where there are very nice resorts, um, really nice as if as if you were in another Southeast Asian country, but then. It just, just after those resorts in Dambula, you cross a checkpoint and it was a whole different world. <laughs> and it was war. I mean, and, and then it, just before the checkpoint, you have tourists with their elephants just uh, having a, a nice uh, tour in, in an elephant. And then you cross the checkpoint and it's a whole different world. And it was a very tough and intense uh, armed conflict at that time between the, uh, the, the, the government and the and the uh, Tamil Tigers at the time. And it was uh, honestly very, very tough and very a situation where civilians were disproportionately affected in a way mm. that I had not seen before. It was amazing. Mm. Uh, and, and, and also the intensity of fighting uh, at the time. I was working with the UNHCR, so uh, at that time, and mostly focusing on shelter projects. And there, were a, there was a lot of displacement because of the offensive uh, wasn't going. So tens of thousands of people were on the move and we, we were there to set up a transit camp, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it was really, really revealing. And, and unfortunately, uh, things did not get better for Sri Lanka. Yeah. Uh, and that year, I left one and a half years later and then things uh, got even even worse. Um, but yeah, all, all, all that in a country that is just amazingly beautiful with yeah. very nice people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, as well. Extremely welcoming and and uh, honest and and helpful uh, individuals. That that's been my experience uh, throughout, actually. Yeah. Um. So m- maybe if if I uh, kind of ask you to 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 think back about all these experiences in conflict zones. Like what stays with you, or or what 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 would you say was the kind of key learning uh, from from all this experience on the ground? If you had to kind of distill it, one thing that strikes me, and I try I still I try to understand, is the com- the complexity of a human being. You know, because that's what we were saying. You know, in Sri Lanka, yeah, it's it's, it's- a paradox. I never, yeah, I mean, of course, I didn't have the depth of experience you had, but I, I just couldn't I couldn't reconcile the two. <laughs> yeah. And in one way or another, that's true for most places uh, like this, you know, uh, that you have this paradox between, uh, you know, people going on with their lives, uh, sometimes uh, seeing enormous cruelty, enormous mm. braveness. So, and, and sometimes in the same person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, actually, and that's good day, you say you know? that. And, and that's... Yeah. The, 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 that gives you a perspective about the complexity of human beings. So I, will, I think the first key learning is that I, I to, to make things a little bit relative, and there is this very famous saying that one one type terrorist is the other type freedom fighter, and that yeah. person sometimes is the same. And so that complexity about uh, about things and and and, and uh, this makes you be a little bit more. Uh, Less money can, you know, in the way mm, it yeah. in the world, and I think that's the, that's a killer. And also has to do a lot with the with the kind of organization I work for, very very strictly neutral. Then, 
And maybe in a more, in, in a wider sense, I think uh, uh, one thing that I learned, I think is the importance, you know, to ensure that policies, high-level policies, take into consideration the real consequences uh, mm. at ground level. And this is not about being ideally, idealistic, you know, and about holding moral values only. I mean, we are well aware about the, you know, that the, the complexity of situations in armed conflict, for example, and others. But uh, um, policies, high-level policies that do not take into consideration the voices of those that really bear the brunt of, of, of their consequences are not smart policies. I, I, and I, I think that's why I also work with the ICST, because it's that this connection. We are very much in the field, but we are also we have a, a, a huge amount of work at diplomatic level, and we try to bridge those two. So that we bring the experiences of people in the field and what we see every day to policymakers, policymakers in New York, uh, at the UN, uh, at P5 at, at, at countries, to, to, to bring that perspective so that policies are smarter. And I think mm, yeah. that's very, very important. Um, as I was saying, me, I do it because I, I also have some ethical uh, um, well, moral values. That I that I want to uphold, but it's also about being smart in the policies you make. So I think that mm. that uh, sometimes that there is a disconnection that is just uh, a decision needs to to fully understand the consequences of of it. So that's one key key learning. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, and, and maybe, maybe to to yeah. bring back to what you were saying earlier is you you, you were mentioning that at a field level on the ground. Um, civilians, first of all, the situation is much more complex than we than we than we than we portray. But there's also ideology t- tends to be not very present. But however, in in the way we present the the issue in decision making centers or even in the Fletcher School, tends to be idealistic, ideological, like talking about. Uh, w- w- one one faction against another, uh, as as if one represents the values of the people and the other doesn't. So so there's a, a process of personalization or simplification of a conflict, because maybe it's just too complicated, and we love simpler stories when we debate issues that we have maybe less of a tangible grasp on. I, I think that, that's that's what I took away a bit from what you were saying earlier. Absolutely, I think that's that, that's a key point, and I think I mean. Academia, policy, we need generalization. Otherwise, it's impossible to stay in reality. And I think that's, that's what is it's very important. Eh? So I don't, I, 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 ideas are, are critical. But I think, uh, yeah, I become, I was very idealistic before, and I have become a little bit more pragmatic with time. And I think it's not one or the other. It's, 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 it's striking mm. the right balance between the two, between the fox and the hedgehog, you know, between the... the <laughs> The, the pragmatic that that uh, try to adapt to every single situation in a different way, and 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 the guy who really apply one single idea to every kind of situation, and and, and both are necessary, but we need to strike the the, the right balance. So I think that's a key key learning for us. But but then I'd like, maybe a bit of a personal question, but I'd, I'd like to ask you because you talk about how your your idealism has uh, been tempered by a dose of realism over time, but but. Personally, you, you you must have seen a lot of very ugly things, um, and so how, how do you how do you deal with that? 
you can you cannot become cynical. Otherwise, it's better you stop doing this job and you do something else. And I've seen that in many people, and it's normal. It, it, it can be a natural reaction to a situation like this, you know, be, becoming cynical, say, okay, we cannot do anything, and this doesn't serve any purpose, and then I do something else. I didn't become cynical. Um, which is a, probably the difference. So I become a little bit, became a little bit more realist, but not cynical. I think there is a lot we can do, and there is a lot that must be done. Uh, and of course, much less than I mean, we are able to do much less than what's needed. But I think bringing a little difference is is important. So and that's the the let's say uh, the motivation to keep things going. Um, I became more pragmatic also because. Particularly, the, 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 the humanitarian sector is a principle value-based activity. So we have very clear yes. principles, you know, this called neutrality, uh, independence, impartiality. They may sound a little a bit abstract, but basically, they, they really, we, we use them as a compass. Sometimes you go into a place and you see that all those nice principles cannot be applied or enter into contradiction with each other. You know, you face ethical dilemmas. Okay, so if I do this, I will be helping more people, but I will be uh, instrumentalizing and supporting this part. So, and then you have to, you, you see that ideas cannot be applied wholesale to a situation, that you be, need to become pragmatic, sometimes compromising one principle against another. Um, and uh, and I think that's, uh, yeah, that's something you need to, to really get uh, accustomed to uh, and uh, yeah I don't know if that's the question. Yeah, but that, that brings another question to mind is it takes a very uh, good organization to handle contradictions in principles. Yeah. As in, so how, how, how is that done? Is that, it, it, do you have the latitude to make that decision or how how does the organization support you in your trade-off between, as you said, impact versus um, uh, independence or, or yeah. avoiding instrumentalization? Yeah, that's, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's basically an everyday work and we take it, it's not, uh, you know, something that you just do with few friends or in a discussion. It's mm. really a, a systematic process and to see, okay, this is the objective. We want to. We have the principle of humanity, which is basically uh, we live in suffering, and then we want to. So that means helping as many people as possible. But then you have the the the, the uh, uh, principle of uh, impartiality that you try to help those most in need, and those two can become in the. So because because maybe you have access to a whole area with one ethnic group. And, 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 you know, the authorities tell you, okay, you can go there, but you cannot go this other place with this other ethnic group. So then those two principles yeah. are into, into contradiction. And, and you have to be, you have to have a systematic ethical deliberation uh, uh, system. And it means to, yes, assessing pros and cons, uh, taking risks, sometimes trying new things because uh, you never know what's going to work. Uh, and in, in particular in the organization I work for and others, that are very, very much value-based is a, is, a, is a discussion that takes a takes place at different levels. First, maybe it can happen in a small office, but for big decisions, it's something that is escalated, you know, and evaluated at, at, at both regional or, or even institutional level and top level when, when necessary. So 
it's a very yeah the systematic process and uh, and because we have so such clear four values mainly operational four values which is humanity independence impartiality and neutrality for us for the ICRC you know we, we we've been having those values for 40 years no 60 years now they were they were structured in in 1960s um, we are very habituated to do that kind of discussion. It's part of the language of the organization. Mm, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And can I connect that back to your own values? Because you, you mentioned you're a very values-driven um, person. Where does that come from? I think education. I think it's, uh, that was my parents, my family. Values are basically what you live at home. And my parents, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think I'm... Uh, better person than anyone, <laughs> anybody else. I just happened to be born in a family that was that was and is very value-driven. Uh, mm, my parents yeah. were very, with extreme honesty, always uh, making, always asking us, don't hurt people, try to be good to you others, uh, be honest, be transparent, uh, um, fight for your values, but do it respectfully. So I think that comes from, uh, from family. And then, well, that's one part. And then, also, your life parkour uh, that yeah. uh, that that also reinforces uh, those those values, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the experience and, of Fletcher and, as well. I think uh, Fletcher for me was a, a place where I really could reflect um, on many of those things from another perspective. You know, with more solid uh, uh, knowledge and exchanging with other colleagues from the very different sectors because I can yeah. I think uh, in in all parts of life you find value base and and or not people and, and in Fletcher I really found a place where we could discuss those uh, those issues um, deeply with very different perspectives, putting uh, a, a theor theoretical uh, uh, underpinning on it, uh, and, and mm, it really yeah. reinforced a lot of what I naturally developed in the past. You mentioned to 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 Christian that you're really an avid learner and the um, continuing this learning journey is very, very important to, to you. Um, can you share a bit more about that, about like, mm -hmm. where are you in that journey? And, and uh, uh, I, I, I believe you're contemplating a PhD as well. I was doing recently a, um a leadership course uh, after Fletcher. I was doing the, the, the senior executive fellows at, at the Kennedy School. And we had these, uh, these few sessions, you know, on, on what motivates you. You know, it's a very typical exercise of any leadership <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, um, course or, or program, you know. And, uh, but we were obliged to, to really dig into it. And it's true that one thing that motivates me, and, and, and that's one key motivation in my whole life, is learning. Mm. So uh, taking a position, not because of the position, not because of the money, but because of what you can learn from it, you know. And, and I realized that that was always driving force, even in, in unconsciously. I really like uh, learning. That's why I, I took undertook gym up, because after 10 years working, I really felt that I was missing some parts and I needed to 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 complement my my skills, my knowledge with other perspectives. So that's where I, I did that. And um, yeah, I like that a lot. That, that I like a lot that quote of Kennedy that says that learning and leadership are indispensable to each other. And I think that's a, that's a very smart thing to say because it's, it's basically you cannot exercise leadership 
without really being committed to continuous learning. I mean, the world changes so fast. I mean, uh, I, I, I see my, my nephews now using TikTok and I'm completely disconnected from that. So that, 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 that's the world of today. So unless you try to keep up modestly, because it's modestly what you can do uh, on that, I, you, you are just losing a train. The, the issue of the PhD is something that I, I really, I'm really th thinking about it. I really thought I was not done for research, that I, w I, was, I was completely <laughs> unable to do anything, any piece of, of research with a minimum uh, quality. But in Fletcher, I learned uh, a lot about that. And I saw that uh, actually it's about discipline. And, 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 and yeah, it made me feel that I, that could be something that I could do in the future. So I haven't yet thought about any any particular <laughs> topic. Well, I have few in mind, but uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just an idea. Maybe later on I will not uh, I will not do it. But it's something I have in mind. Yes. So it's it's it sounds like it's 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 a uh, it's a mix of uh, something that's driving you that you're always curious, but also you you want to be able to underpin uh, your experience with some form of a uh, framework or t uh, lenses and perspective. But it's also uh, you value the contact with different perspectives. Actually, mm. this is all, it. Sounds like it's all of these things that are pushing you uh, to, to stay stay fresh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the contact with different perspectives. I am a very. I'm not categorical at all or dogmatic. So, uh, in you know, when you have a big conversation, you know, and there is a meeting, for example, and there are many people with very clear uh, opinions about 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 things. I often found find value in most of the opinions, with very few exceptions. <laughs> you know? So, and I'm, I'm some, someone that can change opinion in, in certain things pretty quickly, depending on the on the on the evidence provided. So, in that sense, I'm a bit more of a fox. <laughs> and um, and I think and I think that because uh, because it's important to keep your keep keep an open mind to things. I mean, uh, reality is very different for different people, and it doesn't mean that it's contradictory. It means that there are different perceptions. So you have to always keep keep your eyes open and your ears uh, uh, open. And I think the only way to do that is just to, to really uh, uh, listen in and learning and reading about what other people say. And you, you've done quite a lot of education in the U.S. Um, and, and I think you mentioned to Christian contemplating something uh, maybe in the UK, is there, what's your, your, of course you, you and I are both, uh, Europeans, um, although me from, uh, not just France, but UK and Switzerland. So I, I guess I'm less European than you <laughs> in that sense, but, <laughs> um, what, what was driving you to seek a U.S. education experience and, and, uh, why, if you're contemplating a PhD, why, why back in Europe in a way? Well, the, the, the PhD is, I don't know, uh, it, it's not something that I have decided yet. So it's, it's, it's a matter of, uh, well, what we, I, I'll see in the future. But the, why I chose the, the U.S. to do my, uh, my master's and why Fletcher, uh, for me it was very clear because I, I come from a, a very top-down, hierarchical and, and, and quite... Uh, 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 educational system mm. with not much promotion of creativity and I think it's totally different probably now it's a little bit more different than when I was at college uh, but when I was at college I mean it's, uh, uh, 
the educational system it was very much about studying something memorizing it and and yeah, and, yeah. and and passing a, a test and for me that was i mean it's something that doesn't motivate me at all yeah, yeah. and then i think the us the anglo-saxon system is, uh, is is quite different from that it really it supports you to learn what you want to learn and 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 to really uh, um incite creativity a little bit more on you and i think and, and also the, the the amazing service of of professors in the in the us mm, yeah. professors are at your service and uh, and and that you feel that the first day you arrive uh, the, their availability their encouragement so i think it's a whole different system and i yeah, yeah. I, I really wanted to have that perspective as well and it was the right decision i mean yes the, the, the first the residency period in boston i really saw that that was different, and that was what I yeah. wanted. Yeah, and I, I can echo that completely. Even even mm-hmm. though, so having studied in Switzerland, the the uh, still the, the the there's a lot of emphasis on memorizing, and 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 uh, exam was was uh, memorizing hundreds of uh, little cards uh, and yeah. being tested against them. So that's that's why I sought also sought uh, a U.S. education where there was maybe less emphasis on knowledge and much more on, on expression of opinions and debating a position and, and yeah. uh, being able to, 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 to write as well. Yeah. Which I, which I, yeah. Like. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to, to uh, kind of wrap up our, our conversation with um, the topic of, of um, uh, humanitarian as a profession um, so I know I know this is something I believe you 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 discuss with with Christian as well, but I'd love to have your your thoughts on on, on that because it's, it's I, I I I never thought about it, but it, it it seems that even raising this as a question is controversial itself. Like, is it a profession or not? Um, and or is it other professions that are applied to humanitarian situations? Yeah, it's been a big debate. That what I would answer is that. You wouldn't put a surgeon in a in a in a Spanish or French hospital unless he has the right qualifications, the right experience, etc. Why you would do that uh, to put someone with such a responsibility in a place in a, in a in a rural area in Africa without this understanding and this professionalism? And uh, and I I think the only way to do that is professionalization. And, and this been, has been a debate for, for decades in the humanitarian sector, which was historically a little bit less professional. It was more about um, people with a good motivation trying to do, to, to do things. But over time, it has become much more professional and it's needed. We, we have a level of specialization, uh, all humanitarian organizations, including mine, uh, that, that it really needs, uh, they really needs professionalization and needs people with a particular expertise. Be it legal, political, diplomatic, um, engineers, doctors, etc., and uh, so you have the, all those hard skills, but you also need a very strong background on uh, on, on 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 politics. On, on that's why I dislisted myself because I, I really miss that we we I really miss something. And unless you have that professionalization, you would not be doing the good job that people deserve and have the right for. So no, no, me, I mean, I fully, I, I fully support the professionalization. I think we need people with, with understanding of the world, people like those uh, that go to Fletcher and other schools, um, and uh, and that's what people uh, deserve. Yeah. 
Yeah, and recalling some of our previous comments in this conversation, it's it's even uh, beyond the individual. It's also the organization itself in terms of the, the 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 processes. Like we talked about, how do you apply principles to situations? Oh. So so all of that. There's a whole institutional quality that needs to be there to to then enable the professionals to deliver their uh, their specialization. Absolutely, absolutely. And for me, I mean. I think the the, the 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 key thing here is that the humanitarian sector is not just a benevolent mission that is nice <laughs> nice to have. It's a, it's part of an international system. It's part of a, a, of 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 our current world order. It's part of a legal framework that has been ratified. It's part of all that, and it's a public service. And you want to have the best in public service. You want to have the best in government. You want to have the best in diplomacy. You want to have the best also in a, in a, in the humanitarian sector, which is a critical, although small and probably needs and probably not very well known, but it's a critical part of that uh, uh, order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, uh, Enrique. I've really, really enjoyed our, our conversation, and I, I wanted to ask you if there's anything else you wanted to say or share uh, as as we as we wrap up. Well, just uh, sending uh, uh, greetings to all the G-mappers and uh, <laughs> yes. uh, wishing to cross paths again with many of you and, and congratulating you, Philippe uh, uh, and Christian, for this great initiative uh, that you are doing just, uh, just because you like it and you, you find it interesting. And uh, I have to congratulate you and, and thank you for this. Uh, for this. So it was a pleasure to, to talk to you as well, Philippe. Thanks for listening. Please follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from to be the first to know when new episodes come out. Mm-hmm.